0: Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition or NASP again. My name is Peter Liu.
1: And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Today, we are talking about one of the most common problems we see as pediatric gastroenterologist, but it's still often one of the more challenging things that we treat, and what I'm talking about is functional abdominal pain in children.
0: We have the pleasure of uh, talking to Dr. Miguel Saps Dr. Saps is uh, one of the world leaders in this area, so really in all kind of functional GI disorders. Um, A couple years ago, he joined the University of Miami Health System as chief of their division of GI, and also the uh, George E. Bachelor Endowed Chair in Pediatrics. He is also, as we talk about a little bit, um, uh, one of my mentors, I met him as a medical student at Northwestern, and we have continued to work together since then. Because he recorded the episode in his uh, palatial Miami condo full of echoing marble and expensive materials, there's a little bit of sound quality issues, but um, it's still great. It's hilarious. cut that out. (laughs) (laughs) On to the show.
1: On to the show. Take us away, Peter.
0: Dr. Miguel Saps. And so, Jen, you may not know. (laughs) Dr. Saps is actually probably one of the first pediatric gastroenterologists I've ever met in my life. Ever? Yeah. I met him as a medical student. He's the one who inspired me to join the motility and functional GI world.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, now I'm nervous. So
0: welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. That's a presentation. Not even
2: my
1: mom would do that. Yeah. Thank you. So I well, we better do the first go. question then, yeah, because yeah. Peter obviously knows you, but for me and some of our listeners, can you take us back and how did you decide to choose pediatric gastroenterology?
2: So first, I, uh, in my country medical school, seven years, and when I was only six months away of uh, finishing medical school, the only thing I knew for sure is that I wasn't going to do pediatrics. I wasn't sure about anything else, but I knew certainly that pediatrics wasn't for me. And then I had my rotation in pediatrics. And after a week, I just, I got fascinated, you know, by the children, by the innocence, by it was so much fun playing with children, families sometimes, but I really love it. And I decided I had to do pediatrics. And then the second part of that decision is that, okay, now I had uh, within pediatrics, I got a scholarship to do Spain for one year uh, uh, there within the pediatric field. And I was sure that I was going to do pediatric cardiology. That was my passion. Then at the end, a few days before leaving to Spain from Uruguay, I realized that the cardiology was very focused and that I wanted something more integrated with the body and like more connection with different systems. And I decided to change for pediatric esenterology. And I had to call, it was this uh, uncomfortable moment, I had to call the chief of the division there because the money was for, I could choose wherever to go. I could do anything, but I had applied to this place and after sending multiple letters to convince them that I love cardiology, I had to call them uh, on January 1st because I had to be there on January 3rd to explain to him that I wasn't going to be there. That would be in the same building, but I would be in pediatric GI. So that's how my passion for pediatric GI, you know, started. Then I spent a year in liver transplant. And then I came one year to the US to do liver transplant, and I was for sure I was going to do liver transplant. And look what's now. I'm just now a <laughs> new now. So i the glory of transplant, heart, and all these really big things to now to deal with constipation, abdominal pain. But I love it. Anyway. Those
0: are the biggest things by far the most commonly encountered things. Probably, if you add it all up, cumulatively the biggest impact on children.
2: That's true. That's for sure. We, I'm in complete agreement <laughs> with you.
1: So how did you go from transplant to neurogastroenterology?
2: I went back to Uruguay and I wanted to open the first liver transplant program. Clearly, I was too ambitious. I realized that, you know, in the 3 million people country, that wasn't the priority. And then uh, I decided to come to the U.S., when I came to the US, I I didn't know too many people, but I knew Carlo Di Lorenzo and Susan Ornstein. Because I, I used to come go to the naspiga meetings coming from Uruguay right to the meetings. And I always thought that Carlo and Susan were cool. That they were they knew a lot, that they had good questions, good answers. They were there always sitting there, and they were like some mysterious thing that they were they were amazing. So I decided I thought, okay, I have to go to Pittsburgh to do my fellowship. So I went there and then Similar to what's happened in nationwide now, every day after lunch, we used to go for coffee with Carlo, for espresso. The only thing is that I regret is that or the only complaint I had is we were a, we were fellows. We didn't have too much money. Carlo never paid the espresso. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, so we loved those uh, espresso. We used to talk about different things and you know life and medicine and everything. And then at the end of the first year. I need to choose something to do. And uh, so I sat with Carlo. I said, you know, I enjoy working with you. It would be great. But really, who cares about what you do? This is really, it's silly. Like, really, are you embarrassed of working on this field? Like, you know, picture, we do transplant. It was a makeup transplant and things like that. And you're doing uh, constipation and poop and things. And then he sat with me and he explained me and I got hooked. And from that point on, I continued doing neurogasenterology, motility for now 20 years. And I love what I do
0: now. Wow. So really all one person. And then Dr. Saps, a few years later, ended up in Chicago and then came across a lowly third-year student who didn't know what he wanted to do with his life.
2: Yeah. So I I had many students rotating there, and uh, but there were a couple of them that really struck me like they were really ambitious and smart and not Peter good. was one of them. No, no, no.
0: Yeah, no, that's no, not true for
2: sure. I, I saw Peter and I was like, oh, this guy, he seems to be, he really wants to do something. He had good questions. I don't know if he had answers, but he had questions.
1: And that's why he hosts the podcast. No answers. No, no <laughs> answers, just the <laughs> questions.
2: So then uh, I offered him to do this project and he was there only for a month. But he got to finish the, the whole thing, to submit the abstract to a meeting, to an Aspen meeting and to... Uh, submit the the paper and that paper was accepted. So probably was the first paper that Peter had, probably. For sure. From that day on, we had a a number of papers together. Now he's much more important than me, but- No,
0: no, 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 no. The one story that I did not remember at all, Jen, but later, Dr. Saps reminded my wife when we were at a bar at Naspian in DC, like four or five years ago, so as a fourth-year medical student, I went to DDW. I had a poster with Dr. Saps. Like six years later, Dr. Saps tells the story to Leslie that when I was a student, I asked him to hang up my poster for me because I had to go eat breakfast with my girlfriend. I don't even—I still don't know that it's true, but it was true. But I was nice enough to wait
2: until you get married because I didn't <laughs> want to. You know... I ask your wife or give any information that could uh, affect in any way or
0: influence in any way. so
2: embarrassing. I, 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 you know, it was the the only experience, like if I can say something that's done among all the meetings I have been, at least at DDW, that event was, um, I would say, different. I wasn't, he called me like at seven in the morning and said... Uh, to the room and say, Dr. Sachs, if you don't mind, I have a reservation <laughs> for breakfast. Oh. Do you mind the poster or hanging there? And in case I don't get there on time, can you stand
0: up and stand by the no, poster? No, no, and- no. I would have never said <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: that. <laughs> That's not true. But the first part of hanging the poster and going for breakfast, that was completely true. I hope you had a great oh. breakfast because I was like, uh, okay, Sure. What can I say? There, there is no other answer. That yes, I wasn't prepared for that, for that question from you. So the sad so thing is, and it worked.
0: I I was like, "There's no way this story is true." And then I went on my Facebook and I posted a picture of me in a suit. I only dressed up one day for the poster. I was at breakfast with Leslie, and the post is like ditching conference for some grub or something like that. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like actually, okay, moving on. Okay. So most of us in pediatric GI, we take care of children with chronic abdominal pain all the time. And, you know, we all know the majority of the time the pain is functional in nature, right? There's not an underlying disease or damage that's causing the pain. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's hard to explain to families. So, When you, as the expert in this area, when you see a child with chronic abdominal pain and you feel pretty confident, it's functional, how do you explain that diagnosis to the family?
2: The first thing you need to do is to listen to the patient. So the first thing I do when I start the consultation is I level my height and I look at the eyes and I ask him, without looking at the parents, how can I help you? Because that's the most important question that will lead the whole consultation. But if you don't ask that particular question the right way, and you don't take the time to listen, and you wait for a couple of minutes and let him, you know, put together the thoughts and, and tell you something, you're gonna miss uh, the patient. You're not gonna do a good job. Because I, I want to share with you one experience that happened to me. The first, very first patient when I came to Miami when I moved. So I, I was getting my privileges, and Monday I was gonna start seeing patients. On Saturday, a pediatrician called me and he introduced himself he said, you know, I'm a pediatrician in the community, and uh, my niece uh, needs to see you. I was like, okay. And she was recommended from New York. She's in New York and she's coming, and she wants to see you Monday. I was like, sure. I saw this family with the child, clearly they were a little bit anxious because uh, she had symptoms for a long time. And when I asked her the same question I'm telling you now, she gave me an answer that I wasn't expecting. So she said, okay, let me tell you, I'm a, an actress of Broadway and I, I, I have been in Disney commercials, I'm uh, in plays, I, I sing in uh, Broadway, I have solos there, but lately I cannot act anymore because whenever I start singing, I start getting abdominal pain and I had to run to the bathroom and being in custom like for three and a half year, hours or so in a play, I had to stop acting. So if you don't ask that question, you will never get that answer because nobody clearly was explaining explaining that answer from a child. Isn't it? You, right. How many times you have a your patient is a, a prodigy, you know, an actress from who does commercials on TV. So the first thing is I start with that question, and then you have the job of, um, and then you, you need to ask, you need to figure out if there are any comorbidities. What else is bothering the patient? And once you have this, this information together, what I do. Uh, frequently, I tell them, you know, and you get in your mind, you have a diagnosis, a functional diagnosis in your mind. You put the patient in certain groups based on what's bothering the patient, and then I, I ask them to open the wrong criteria. And I, you know, you don't have all the time of the world in the world, so you just I move to the diagnosis I think that most likely, and I ask them to read it. And frequently, they look at you after reading for a few seconds, and they're like, "Oh, but that seems very similar to what he or she has." I think that's what he has at that time you're you sold the, the consultation isn't it because at that time when they see that writing it somewhere then they will believe you and that's the first thing you need to start then you can start discussing other things discussing treatment and other things but if you don't if you don't get they're not on board with your diagnosis then you will never get uh, a great result of your consultation and then I try to explain them the break axis people usually relate to the history that if you are brain dead, if you have pain, you will not feel it, and they understand that there is a connection. Then that the input from your gut has to go to your brain, you know, in order to perceive it. And usually they relate to with the history that when you are uh, stressed, and everybody has stress, and that you may feel butterflies, or that uh, you may get diarrhea in in a in something that's exciting or sad. You know, it's much longer, but that's uh, those are key aspects of the consultation that I always touch on them. For them, it's very reassuring to know that there is a name, that there is a label, that they know what they have. The other thing that's important for them to understand that this is common. Usually, people don't go to the, the PTA in the, in the meetings that my son or my daughter have diarrhea. You know, you're know, you not going to go socially very far if that's what your uh, the small talk. So people don't usually discuss those things. So what happens is that they think that the kid is unique, that the kid that has diarrhea or they can have severe abdominal pain it's the only kid that has these symptoms. And we know from epidemiological studies that's not true. That is very common. Showing the patients that they have a diagnosis that well-known, that you know about this diagnosis, that you know what to treat, and that's common, that's frequently helpful. I usually tell them, oh, yeah, IBS, this is, yes, IBS. Oh, I have three kids like you today. Like, even if, you know, if it's an IBD day, but it's always <laughs> helpful to say, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, kid like you. I just saw two kids like you. And they look at you like, really? Yeah, this is common. You don't know? Look, in your class, this happens one in 10. I'm sure you, how many kids are in your class, in your classroom? Okay, three kids will have the same symptoms. It's just people don't talk about this. That normalizes the situation. I think that's helpful. for Mostly for patients who had chronic symptoms for a long time, and they just feel lost, and they don't know what it is, or so they keep doing tests on them, and nobody gives me an answer. The only answer they get is that this test was negative. You don't have this, you don't have that. What well, doesn't help too much to know what you don't have, isn't it? It helps you more to know what you have. So that's why I think it's important to, to share the wrong criteria with the patients. Yeah.
0: So listening to the patient and then making a positive diagnosis. So not saying, well, everything was negative, so you must have this. But it's like everything fits exactly with the story it's this diagnosis. Okay. So we talked about why it's important to make a positive diagnosis. And you also kind of talked about the Rome criteria, right? So they'll split up the functional abdominal pain disorders based on certain characteristics. And I think it is, like you had said, it's very helpful when people realize that their disorder has been described and it's something we see regularly. But why does it really matter? I think there are still some people who see a kid with abdominal pain, just call it, it's functional abdominal pain or everything is just IBS. Why does it matter to really try to identify whether it's IBS or functional dyspepsia or abdominal migraine? Why does that matter clinically? Or is that really more just for research purposes?
2: So all of them up, as usual. That's the right answer. Always E. But <laughs> besides that, I think I believe that the wrong criteria is important. Maybe I'm a little bit subjective, but it helps you organize your mind, What the, what is the diagnosis of the patient. It helps you organize your management. It helps you organize your treatment. It helps you if that patient you're going to send to somebody else to be seen or you're going to have a second opinion. Then you can talk about a common language. And in many cases, there is some correlation between the pathophysiology and the phenotype. And I, when I see a patient, one of the things I, I'm thinking all the time is that what would be the pathophysiology behind the symptoms? There are very few symptoms in uh, in pediatric GI, isn't it? There are like seven symptoms. <laughs> you know, pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, distension, and bloating, and that's it. So that's what we have of symptoms and signs. They, they can be very unspecific. So it's important to put each of these diagnoses within certain category and try to, as you see the patient, try to think of the pathophysiology. So you don't treat just a symptom that sometimes we do, but also we treat the pathophysiology. And there is, the correlation is not perfect but frequently it's there. And even in functional dyspepsia, in it, you don't treat the same way epiglassic pain or postprandial distress syndrome. So it's important, I think, uh, for that. But as you mentioned, if you talk about research, if we want to have uniform inclusion criteria, you need to have a common language. You need to have a way of saying this patient has this diagnosis uh, or, this, or this other diagnosis. And in the future, hopefully we're going to have biomarkers that will help us, uh, They will correlate and will help us identify each of these uh, type of diagnosis. But we're not there yet. I think that's part of the things that will happen in the next round, hopefully.
1: So I want to kind of take us back because even over the course of the last decade or two, I think most people thought that functional abdominal pain was idiopathic or a diagnosis of exclusion. And I think a lot of patients will even use the words like, I've been told this is all in my head. So you've spent a lot of your career showing that functional abdominal pain does have causes and we're starting to better understand these mechanisms. Uh, Can you explain what causes functional abdominal pain?
2: So I think it's a combination. There is a predisposition and then there are triggers. And those triggers may be stressors that could be physical uh, or can be psychological. Frequently, the most common one is an infection, isn't it? We see post-infectious IBS. That's the most common form of IBS. But also we see kids who, when they are in a stressful situation that they start high school or something happened to them or or they're bullied or some other problems, they go through some other difficult times in their life, they may uh, start having these symptoms. But frequently we have, we can elicit in the history if we are careful enough to find some predisposition. The most common one, we know family, uh, families who have uh, functional disorders are more likely their kids, to have functional disorder, but also there are predisposing factors in the same patient. Similar to the study we did with uh, Peter, that caused me pro- we found that cow's milk protein allergy in infants predisposed to have abdominal pain years later. There are other factors, other inflammations, uh, other kind of uh, trauma that's not only physical, like umbilical uh, hernia surgery, inflammation, like HSP, uh, having a UTI in the first year of life. So there are many factors that can predispose. It's just that we don't have enough research and we don't don't have the longitudinal research in order to connect and put together all these predisposing factors and protective factors because those are important too, with the triggers in order to understand uh, the whole picture of functional disorders. But in summary, uh, there are predisposing factors. In a few of the cases, we know some genetic factors, uh, but those are very few. Many of the early stressors, we don't know them. And and then sometimes it's easy to identify the, the triggers. And that's why many times they say it's in your head or you are like just very anxious and, like, uh, and those can be just the triggers. But there is a reason why that particular patient developed the symptoms and not somebody else who may have a similar triggers or vice versa.
0: So, okay, moving on a little bit to treatment. And so you kind of answered this a little bit already. Like when you first meet them, you already ask about what the child's goals are, I guess. How do you think about treating a child with a functional dental pain disorder? Um, Like how do you adjust it based on their symptoms or presentation, or how do you usually think about that?
2: You need to listen to the patient. I try to, to understand the whole, the problem of the patient, what's really problematic for that particular patient. And sometimes the parent try to, uh, You know, frequently they talk a lot and they don't let the the kid talk. And again, respectfully, I I stopped because I want to hear from the kid. I want to know what's really bothering the kid. And you're not going to be successful if you don't treat what's really important for the kid. Also, you need to see what kind of comorbidities the patient has. If you don't listen and if you don't ask uh, with open questions, you may not realize that the the pain, the belly pain is a five, but the headaches is a ten. So, if you improve the pain from five to three, and you may have a successful clinical trial because you improve by more than thirty percent your abdominal pain according to the FDA, the quality of life is not going to improve if the migraine headaches continue to be a 10. And if the patient is not going to school and still is not going to, is not able to socialize or to go to uh, play dates or sports or gym, or it's a weird kid, if you don't build that part you're not going to be successful. The quality of life is not going to improve. Uh, So I decide how to treat based on what's most important to the patient. And I agree with you. I set the goal straight from the beginning. I try to explain that despite that for the parent, the most important problem may be the abdominal pain, for the kid is that he cannot go to baseball practice. Mm. So medications and all the other uh, techniques or treatments that we have, they will help only if they are... uh, align with what the patient needs. So that that's why it's so important to have a, a long consultation. These are not patients you can see in five minutes. Yeah, you can take the history say, one to 10, what's your baby pain, And you can write the, the history like in click, click, click with Epic or with CERNR. But that's not going to be a, a good uh, situation. You're not going to be successful if you do that. way. Uh, you're going to need to spend the time and to really understand the, pro- the problem of the child and what what's really important for the child and for the
1: family. Yeah, that that's, makes sense. deep. So I'd like to talk a little bit about medication, um, specifically amitriptyline. So one of the most important studies in the treatment of functional abdominal pain disorders is your multi-centered randomized control trial on amitriptyline. But you found amitriptyline was not significantly better than placebo, but we still sometimes use it anyway. So what do you think about that?
2: Okay, you sometimes use it. I use it all the time. <laughs> I try to the, the tone it down a little bit.
1: Because
2: when you, do, when you use the evidence, I think the smart way and the correct way to use the evidence-based medicine is that you apply the knowledge of the studies to this particular patient. So you combine the research with the art of medicine. And that's something we cannot lose, the art of medicine, isn't it? That's why I'm so against all these quick consultations or these standardized questionnaires and And just to to have a quick consult. If you look at the study, yes, it was negative. But if you think how we do studies, they will ask you, your IRB, that you include a wide variety of patients. When you include so many children, each of them with different problems or different factors, different triggering factors, as we mentioned, or different predisposing factors, if you think that with a single medication, you're going to improve everybody, that's really naive. The way of using the medication is, okay, I know how it works, I know the safety, and I apply for the particular patients that they need it. And the ones I think I need it, they need it is those that they either fail other banal treatment that are more um, commonly used, like anticholinergic, antispasmodics, for which we have zero evidence, or for the patients who have long-standing symptoms, or we have, uh, as Peter said, uh, the important is the uh, ability of the patient to function. So I use that all the time. I t- it's important to explain them in that case that's not an acute analgesic that's to be used in, in long term because it works, among other things, in neuronal plasticity. Uh, so they have to use it every day. And then I always use, a, I always uh, ask for an EKG. Uh, very rarely, you know, you have acute deprivation, but I do it anyway, and I document. I document that I talk, I discuss the FDA, uh, black box uh, warning and but really the black box warning is important because you know legally i want to discuss and i want to disclose everything with the patient but in so many years i have been practicing i had only two or maybe three patients who had weird thoughts now nothing like suicidal ideation but they were like i always tell them if you feel weird just stop taking it and call me and i had two or three patients they felt a little bit weird and they stopped it but I have used it probably thousands of times. So we know it's a safe medication. So I use it all the time. And I, I think that I have success. I had patients, you know, that if it wasn't successful uh, for pain, I had patients that not just have belly pain, they have headaches. And frequently in those patients, they improve both uh, of the symptoms. So the bottom line, I always try to tailor the treatment to the patient. And in some patients, but many of them, I use amitriptim.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, no, that makes sense.
0: And I feel like, so that almost highlights a number of important issues with the current research in functional abdominal pain disorders. You know, you had mentioned before why it's important to try to classify disorders. If you lump all the abdominal pain disorders, you know, it's going to be a very messy study. You're not going to know really how a medication works for, for example, abdominal migraine, which might be totally different than how amitriptyline would work for, um, maybe just functional dull pain, you know, something that not otherwise specified. It also points to how little data we have for even our most commonly used antispasmodics. You know, it's anyways. I think it's just important that we think about all those things and then tailor the treatment to the patient.
2: You are aware because I think you're part of it, in which we're looking at the placebo effect, and that we compare with an antispasmodics. Just telling them they're going to get placebo and taking a medication that had a label of placebo, big, big, bold letters, uh, they still got better, significantly better than uh, using antispasmodics. So there are many things we still need to learn about the treatment of these disorders. And that's why I agree with Peter. We need to have good studies in order to understand uh, better how, how to treat our patients.
0: You know, speaking to that a little bit, so especially with the lack of evidence of many of the medications we use, We know placebo itself can be effective. If we're thinking about, well, how can we minimize side effects for these medications, especially when medications have not been always proven to work in well-organized studies, you know, there has been a lot of research looking at behavioral treatment from a psychologist who's trained in these treatments or even even through recordings and other kinds of uh, methods of teaching. How do you view the role of the psychologist in the treatment of children with uh, functional DOM pain disorders. And then also like, how do you explain that uh, to a family that you just explained, it's not on your head, but we're going to have a psychologist come help treat you.
2: I think again, we need to tailor the treatments and there are patients who have a lot of comorbidities or they are severely impacted by their um, disease. And those patients uh, I think clearly need the help of psychologists. I like to work with the psychologist side by side. Uh, we had that in nationwide and when I was in Chicago too, and discuss the patient with the psychologist. That helps the patients to understand that the families mostly to understand that we are equal food here. And this is not just a physical problem. I'm not I'm never gonna say it's not a psychological problem, but we as the body is a whole, isn't it? And I try to explain the brain gataxis and explain the patients that with the similar examples that I mentioned today about the stress and the belly butterflies and all these kind of things. But at the end, the body is one thing. It's it's a whole. So if you get a good report with the patient, you get for them to buy into your ideas, then you can introduce a psychologist. And in my experience, there are like three groups of families. The ones that they they come here looking for a psychologist, those are a minority. Those you can convince who are in the fence. And then the other ones who it's going to be impossible. It doesn't make any sense even to propose because they're just not there because because of philosophical, religious, or other kinds of ideas that they're not open to that. So you need to decide who are you going to introduce a psychologist to? Because psychology or CBT is not the only treatment. isn't it? mind-body, hypnotherapy, others. I frequently use hypnotherapy. We train in Miami two of our nurse practitioners. uh, They do hypnotherapy. So for all of those, all those treatments, you're going to have to explain the parents, the brain-gut connection, they're going to have to buy into that. And I was going to mention that experience I had in in, in Nationwide when a family, when I tried to, to mention hypnotherapy, because I always tell them there is evidence for psychological treatment, for hypnosis, and for medication. And I explained the evidence of each of them, and I tried to leave it open and to see where... Where they, where they stand, what they prefer because after all if there is evidence for the three of them I would use whatever is more amenable for the family and when I go to explain them about chemotherapy the mother just stands up look at me and, and she said we don't do this kind of things here and she left mm. so there are there are times in which there is no point to introduce certain techniques or certain treatments if the family is not open to them so that's why we go back to Take a good history, listen to the family, see where they stand and combine with the evidence. And that's what's going to help you to get the best treatment.
1: I think we've talked about this a little bit, but we've, we've talked a little bit about the spectrum of functional abdominal pain disorders and how it's changed over the course of time. Um, And you mentioned biomarkers, but what do you think is coming next? What do you see changing in the next decade or two in this field?
2: I think that we are going to have to change the paradigm and and to change from treating those patients who are the most severe who are the most chronic and change to prevention. This is one of the few condition diseases in which we don't try to prevent. We are all about prevention. We keep talking about vaccines and all kind of things, but there is no vaccine. This is a between quotation isn't it? it's not thinking a real vaccine. But there is nothing that we use to prevent and we it's not in our mind that try to prevent the uh, development and we're doing a longitudinal study with uh, adults and finally I got adults interested in looking at pediatrics to see all the factors, predisposing factors and factors to develop but also to pers- to, for the persistence of symptoms in patients with functional disorders since birth until old age because that's what's going to help us inform preventative uh, strategies. And in fact, Peter worked in an uh, editorial who he wrote about this prevention too. I think we're in agreement on that too. When I was in Chicago, we did a study in which 100 kids uh, were controlled and 100 kids had an intervention in a school. At the beginning of the year, we gave them uh, six sessions with psychologists. Uh, They didn't know the hypothesis. We just gave them strategies to deal with things that will happen throughout the school year. So we told them you know throughout the school year, you're gonna have things that not everything is gonna be uh, fun, and you're gonna have things, situations in which you're gonna have to deal with with them. So we're gonna teach you how to deal with those situations. So we taught them coping skills, and what happened is that when we compare after months, and we didn't take just kids with abdominal pain, we took all cameras. When we compare the kids that had the intervention with the controls, they were able to go to school more often. They were not missing so much school. They were not missing playing dates so much. They were not missing gym so much. There was some de- uh, decrease in abdominal pain, but it wasn't significant. But there was a great de- decrease, significant in headache. So that shows that you can prevent. But that's just a, a small example that we can prevent.
0: With the sharp rise in anxiety and depression and other psychological disorders and mental health disorders in children and adolescents. I mean, you know, the importance of prevention is only magnified, I guess, with like <laughs> this huge increase in a huge risk factor for functional developmental pain disorders
1: at the residency program where I trained, they are just now implementing mandatory counseling for all interns hmm. mm-hmm. and all interns have uh, have to go. I I think it was at least two times in the first six months. And you can do it on your own schedule, but it's kind of built in. And everybody had yeah. to go to kind of learn coping with transitioning to intern year.
0: So there's like no stigma for trying to seek someone out.
1: Exactly. And if yeah. you decide you want additional sessions, you're able to do that. I think they get six per semester with no cost. Yeah. Um, but everyone is mandated to do a few.
0: I mean imagine if they had that for like kids in school, kind of like how your study, Dr. Saps, you know what your study did. We've been asking all of our guests kind of the same final questions. So what advice do you have for trainees and uh, more junior faculty?
2: I think you have you have to follow your passion and you need to have fun in what you do. It's very difficult to succeed in life or to be happy in life and in your career if you don't if you're not passionate about what you do and if you enjoy what you do. And then you need to combine this passion with persistence because things are not easy many times, but if you keep doing it and you put your heart on them, eventually you're gonna succeed. So I think we need, always need to remember that. We need to remember to have fun. We need to remember to persevere. Uh, and then that will be the secret to success.
1: Uh, do you have any final words for our listeners? Two
2: things we need to continue supporting Aspigan and we need to continue to support this uh, podcast that's great and I think we need to do more yes. of them I think give us an opportunity to interact with our members and for uh, to talk about other things to talk about science to talk about medicine but to talk also about uh, lighter aspect of our life and to know each other more in a personal level so I think this is the way to the future I really enjoy this podcast and I think it's it's great and we should do more of them. <laughs>
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, interview and episode. You know, it's been so much fun to talk to someone who has been my mentor for a long time. And um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us.
1: And I hope to meet you in person again sometime very soon.
2: You're going to get disappointed. But anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for having having me. This was a pleasure. It was so much fun.
1: Based on those conversations, sounds like he was a pretty great mentor to have, Peter.
0: He's all right. (laughs) (laughs) I know. He was was great, obviously. Okay. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Bowelsounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes.
1: And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things.
0: One, tell one person about the podcast.
1: Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast.
0: And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspghan Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspghan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs.
1: And as always, the discussions, views, and recommendation of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field.
0: Thank you all for listening.
1: Until next time.